Antonio Skinnerio. <laughs> Ian Crone. <laughs> I caught you off guard there, didn't I? You, you totally were... did. So here we are. We're in the Typology Studios. You and I and my two dogs, yes. Percy and Pip. Have you ever given ascribed a number to your dog? Oh, yeah. All right. Tell everybody the name of your dog and what you think. The name of my dog is Ladybird. Yep. Ladybird Butternut Skinner. <laughs> you are a four, aren't you? First, the very fact that you named a bird, I mean, Ladybird. Okay, continue. I had a conversation with my daughter about that on the way to school today. Ladybird Butternut. And uh, I would say that she is definitely a seven. Really? Yeah. A lot of dogs are sevens. Yeah. yeah. Right? She's always trying to put a smile on your face. Yeah. You know? Kind of hard typing dogs, but I'm pretty sure about my dogs. Pip is definitely a five. Okay. No question about it. That dog is a five. Really? Oh, now Percy, on the other hand, uh-huh. is pure nine. Pure nine. Oh, just so eager to please, have go along to get along. Uh-huh. I mean, just the greatest easy going. But Pip, you know, Pip sits in a corner and just stares at you. <laughs> <laughs> She's just observing everything, man. And we're... You know, Percy's tail's wagging, jumping in your lap, licking you. I love feel you. that, yeah. And, and, but and, but Pip is slow so to come sweet. on to you. That's yeah. right. Did you just say my dog is slow to come on to you? <laughs> is that a resentment statement, or is that, what is what is that? Look, like right now, she is like right in my lap. But it took a while for this to it happen. It takes a while. Yeah. She has to observe. She observes for a long time before she, she moves in. She definitely observes life rather than jumping in and participating in it. Eventually she does, but it, it takes a lot of warm up for Pip. And when she comes in, she's got that uh, you know six six loyalist wings. She's there for you. She's a sweetheart. Yeah. I love my Pip. Talking about you, baby. I love my Pip, and I love my Percy. Look at that tail wagging. He's just ready to jump into my lap. Okay, well enough talk about dogs. Gotta, Let's talk about another our great amazing guest. guest. Today. Yeah. We have an amazing guest today. Her name is Amy Downs, and. Amy has one of the most dramatic stories we've ever had on this show. Mm-hmm. She's a survivor of the Oklahoma City bombing. Yes. She's the author of a brand new book called Hope is a Verb. Mm-hmm. And we have a great conversation. First of all, it is terribly moving, right? There's, there's Oh, absolutely. We have a lot of near-tier moments in, in this yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, secondly, she... She comes on the show uncertain if she's a three or a nine, mm-hmm. so right? We get to talk through all that. We get to talk through that. And I think we kind of arrive at a place. Yeah. You know, of course, she has to sure. verify it herself. But that was really interesting. It was. Uh, uh, and then and then talking about this incredible transformation that occurred in her life as a result of her surviving oh, this. Oh, huge. Just bombing. Yeah. And, and also, her... She's very familiar with the Enneagram. She uses it at her in her business. Right. Uh, and, I mean... It was rich. Yeah, really rich. And we talk about trauma, too, in this one. Again. Yeah, again. You know, in, which leads me to the next thing, right? We, we were talking earlier about the That's new right. Typology yeah. Institute membership, Yep. which is, uh, we're going to hear more about it at uh, the midpoint of the show. That's right. Uh, but this is a brand new resource uh, for typology listeners, for anybody that mm-hmm. wants to kind of take a deeper weekly dive into the uh you know, to some other topics of the Enneagram. 
this know, month's emphasis is on trauma. It's on trauma. And yeah. so we had two episodes that we recorded today and trauma came up. Yeah. And man, it's 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 a big topic with the Enneagram. Yeah. The Typology Institute membership is awesome. Like you said, we're going to go into it, but an extra podcast, lots yes. of really great things. Oh yeah. You get a newsletter, you yeah. get a free town hall, yeah. right? To be on Q&A. live with me for yep. a Q&A uh, every month. And so all kinds of good stuff. You'll hear about it at the midpoint. I hope everybody will join on. We sent out an email earlier this week and uh, man, people are flooding to it. So I hope we'll get more people on board with the Typology Institute That's right. membership. Okay. Yep. Now, okay, enough talk about that. Let's talk about Amy Downs. Let's get to talking with her. I know that folks will be as moved and as impressed with her journey as we were. So let's get to it. Amy Downs, welcome to Typology. I am thrilled now, to be we here. We are thrilled to have you. You have an amazing story. We're going to have a wonderful time today talking about what life is like for you as a, we think, a three with a two wing. We're going to talk a little bit more about that because your story is so dramatic. You might, in fact, be a different number, and we're not sure because of that. And I just I can't wait to jump into it. Tell folks your amazing story and also about your new book, Hope is a Verb. Yes. So my previous life in, go back to 1980s, okay, that was the time period where I had amazing <laughs> hair. And it was also an era of amazing music. Um, I flunked out of college, didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, had a, a bad breakup, was really spiraling down. And I thought the answer to that would be to get married very quickly to the first person who wanted to marry me. And that would fix everything. And of course, that doesn't ever fix you. Um, so I had a long period of my life where I was very complacent. I gained 200 pounds. Um, I would almost describe myself as an unhealthy mm. nine, I guess, mm-hmm. in reading your book, the description of that. Um, and then in 1995, the Oklahoma City bombing occurred. And I worked on the third floor mm. of the Murrah building, front and center. And when the bomb went off, I fell three floors and was buried under about 10 feet of rubble. And um, I didn't lose consciousness. I remember all of it. And there were a couple things that happened in that situation that I think really shaped the person Mm -hmm. I am today. One is right before the bomb went off, one of my coworkers who was seven months pregnant came and sat down beside me. And I was a very immature 28-year-old. And this was someone in the office that, for whatever reason, um, mm-hmm. irritated me. So I was actually ignoring her, you know, signing on my computer, doing other stuff because it was irritant to me. What does she need? And when I finally took care of everything else and turned to finally say, what do you need? The bomb went off, I think, before mm-hmm. I even said, what do you need? And she was killed. So I fell three floors and I remember hearing the the roaring and the screaming. And there was a woman screaming right in my ear, Jesus, help me, Jesus, help me. And then me realizing that was actually my voice. That was me screaming. I didn't even recognize the sound of my own voice. Later, 
some 45 minutes later when men came in looking for the daycare babies, there was a daycare in the building. I started screaming and they found their way to me and found my right hand sticking out of the side of a big rubble pile. When they found my hand and they grabbed my hand, I thought they were going to pull me out. But I started hearing voices screaming in the background saying, there's another bomb. There's another bomb. We got to go. We got to go. There's another bomb. And so my rescuers said, we need to get some more hydraulic equipment. We're going to be right back. They were trying to reassure me, but I had heard, and I now knew that it had been a bomb. There was another bomb and they had to go. So I told them my name and to tell my family, I love them. And with that, I was alone. So I then began having what a lot of people would refer to as life flashing Mm -hmm. before your eyes. And thinking about how I had wasted my life. And this is a sentence out of my book that I wrote. And um, this is before I, I wrote, this was written before I knew anything about being a three or I knew anything about the desire to want to just be loved for just me. So this is when I was buried in the rubble and they told me there was another bomb that was going to go off and they had to leave me. And so I'm talking about how I was bargaining with God and just begging him for a second chance and really wanting to feel his presence and just begging mm. him to, for me to know he was near and feel his presence. And I felt nothing. And um, anyway, so um, I said he didn't agree to any of my offers. I can't explain how I know, but I did. He was full of joy right now, though, holding me just as I was. He didn't love me. He didn't love, excuse me. He didn't love who I might be in the future. He didn't love my past decisions. He loved me in that moment. He loved stupid, big, selfish Amy. It was unconditional love. Here seconds before I was about to die, I had everything I'd ever wanted singing to God as he embraced me. But that's the desire, you know, that we have to be just loved for who we are. And it's just a reminder that there really is only one person that truly loves us for who we really are, you know. So anyway. Wow. And of course, there wasn't a second bomb. And that's why I'm here today. And um, it took them six and a half hours to get me out. And I remember when they finally, after that six and a half hours, I was buried the entire time. They pulled me out from under the rubble. And put me on the back of a gurney, took me out of the back of the federal building. And I remember taking that first breath of fresh air and looking up at the sky and promising God, I will never live my life the same. And they took me to the hospital and I would find out one by one that 18 of my 33 coworkers were killed. Uh, My my best work buddy, Sonia, who had two-year-old and three-year-old baby girls at home, was killed. Just person after person. I would get phone calls during the week with family members asking me if I remembered what so-and-so was wearing that day. And I, even though I had seen all my friends that morning, I couldn't remember what anybody was wearing. So I say all that to say that as the years followed, the, the grief and the trauma was, although I wanted to start this new, I'm going to live my life different. It took some years to get some traction because of working through a lot of, a lot of grief and trauma and survivor guilt. But I never lost that moment of just, I'm going to live my life different. 
And at first, the only thing I could do different was some spiritual changes, you know, um, knowing I wanted to have a relationship with God. I didn't, you know, I, there were some changes I made immediately that I could make, but Mm -hmm. a lot couldn't make. My company I worked for was a financial institution, a credit union that was in this building. And our sole purpose was to serve the people in this building. And it was our only location and it was rent free and it was destroyed and there was no plans for a new building. We lost over half our staff. So we had to figure out very quickly what we were going to do to survive. And it became very personal because it felt like if our credit union didn't survive, it meant the memories of those we loved Mm -hmm. would disappear, which is not true, but it just became this personal thing. So we started learning very quickly how to set goals, action steps, like, like it's amazing that it's amazing. We made it. I look back now. I'm like, we should have gone under. Mm -hmm. I can't believe it, but we did, we survived. And I began learning this sort of method for how to set goals and accomplish them. And that started bleeding over into my personal life. I started using what I learned to like, you know, I want to go back to school. You know, I want to get my degree. And I'd previously flunked out because I couldn't pass the remedial math class. And so as I began to have success, it just bled over into all the other areas of my life. And it was kind of like I became sort of addicted to achieving and the success. And I, it just, I just kept leveling up and that's how I describe it. I start every morning out asking myself if I had a magic wand, you know, what would I do? What would my life look like? Who would I be coming? And then given my current situation, my current limitations, what are the smallest steps I can take? And I just feel very driven now. And then that's also has been a little problematic when COVID hit. And I honestly went through a rough patch where your book um, had to do some Mm. work on myself as suggested in mm. part of your book. Wow, so. what a story. Uh, just just amazing. And now you're the CEO of that credit union, right? Oh, okay. Yes, so let I me get, know. and what was your job title before the bombing happened? Um, a teller. Okay, a teller. so you went from teller. Uh, and one that couldn't balance a cash drawer. In fact, I had, when I became promoted to CEO, I called the guy that I accidentally gave a pack of $100 bills instead of a pack of $1 bills. And he brought it back to me and I didn't get fired. The day I became CEO, I called him and thanked him for my job. Wow. So you were 200 pounds heavier. Uh, you described a life that just felt disappointing and... Um, one in which perhaps you, you just failed to live up to any measure of, um, you know, living up to your potential, right? Tell me about what your childhood was like and how, you know, because part of the thing I'm wondering here, we talked about this before we started recording. You're like, well, I don't know if I'm a three with a two or I was a nine and then went to the high side of three, you know, as a result of the bombing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I'm just, I'm curious a little bit. Tell me about, just briefly, what you were like as a kid, as you, yeah. what your mindset was like in those years. So um, I grew up in the South in Louisiana mm-hmm. in a Christian home. My uh, dad went to work every day. My mom stayed home. Um, I believe my mom, if what if was not uh, clinically, maybe borderline, whatever, uh, narcissist. Mm-hmm. So I did learn very early on to 
reflects my personality or uh, adjust or adapt to make her happy. Mm-hmm. You know, um, as me, my brothers and sisters, we kind of joke that we can't ever do anything normal. We always do things extreme. So all mm-hmm. of us have become, we've, we kind of have all had this achievement thing going on in our lives. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know if that's where it stems from, but I would guess that it probably has some impact that has mm-hmm. an impact on us. And yet, you, you say you all have an achievement orientation, but here you were, uh, not living up to your potential, not achievement oriented. It sounds like um, it sounds like maybe um, if I, if I were going to use a word, you know, we talk about the vice of the of the nine being sloth, mm-hmm. meaning a spiritual laziness, a, a a kind of laziness around self development, about yes. becoming the highest expression of oneself falling asleep to your own desires and and wishes and dreams uh in usually to merge with those of another person or uh with a group or i'm talking about the three different subtypes here to merge with comfort which is often comes in the form of food uh you know binge watching um it could be exercise for some people but it's it's the pursuit of anything that supports the nine's well sense of well-being, right? And yeah. it's a way we call it narcotization. It's a way of numbing out. Yeah. That you, you might tell yourself it's like, no, I'm just being a peaceful person. It's like, no, you're kind of drugging, right? And and what the nine is drugging is not only their anger, but their, um, you know, a lot of these soulish desires that that come up and just dis- disturb their inner peace. And they just want they just want inner peace. You know, they just I- want inner peace. You would li- I would lie to myself about my life because I couldn't face really what my life looked like. So mm. there were some things in my life I, 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 I always say now I don't ever want to forget who I am. Mm. I, I, like, you know, um, for another person, you know, I want to remember who I am. What and, do you mean by um, that? To forget who I am for another person? What does so that mean? So I, I do think there has been a tendency to, for me in the past, to um, avoid conflict to the point of, um, you know, um, setting aside, you know, everything for yourself to keep peace and keep things good for another person. Hmm. And so it's interesting you just say that if your mom is a um, what's called a narcissistic borderline, they, they tend to be explosive, uh, unpredictable. Uh, rageful. In fact, rage is what's holding the personality together for the borderline. Uh, it's sort of the glue of the personality. Um, and uh, they're, they're, the rage is so... Um, uh, I mean, the only word is it's... it's you, you don't have any idea of when it's coming. And, and it could be a teeny thing that sets it off. Or, you know, it's you're always... In fact, there's the most famous book on, on borderlines, of course, is called Walking on Eggshells. And so uh, it, it's that sort of experience. And that could really create a nine personality, right? It, it That kind of, how do I blend into the background in order to just kind of keep the peace and not arouse conflict and, and you know, anger in the atmosphere... I don't know if that's your story, but in yeah, my mind, it could be. you know, that's, you know, that's kind of what I'm thinking, you know, at the same time. Uh, 
But then you have this wild traumatic experience. And yes. you mentioned earlier, like, I don't know, maybe I was a nine and this experience was, you know, and I'm going to use this phrase intentionally, sort of a wake up call. Yes. And that your life, that your life needed to be different. And, uh, and to your credit, you grabbed it. You lost 200 pounds. You, you became an Ironman, uh, uh, you know, I'm not sure what you call triathlete. it. Triathlete. Triathlete. Thank you. You could you you know why I don't know what a triathlete is, right? <laughs> because the likelihood of my becoming one is infinitesimally small. Um, and you know, uh, you you know, if we were going to say you were a nine, we would say that this inciting event launched you uh, uh, across the enneagram to the high side of three, where, in your words, you became goal-oriented, achievement-oriented. You know, and here you are. The so I don't know. It seems to me there are times in life when people have these amazing, life-shifting, nearly instantaneous shifts uh, in personality in the way they see the world that's brought about by trauma of some kind, and then leveraged for the good in the midst of that trauma. Um, I don't know. Does that sound like it fits? It does. And and that's what I've wondered. Um, the one, I will say this. So I can't remember when I first heard about the Enneagram, but when I did, of course, I went to, you know, Google and Googled Enneagram, took whatever first test popped up. And I remember kind of being frustrated or discounting it because I like came out with an even score all the way down. So I like, eh, that Enneagram thing. Doesn't All work. nine types? Yeah. But then somebody told me about this book, um, The Road Back to You, and told me I had to read it. So I got the book. I started reading it. And then I went and took the test that you offered on your site. And it came back very different. Um, and I thought, no, I didn't want to be. It came out that I was a three and I was like, you know, I don't want to be a three. So I wanted to take the test again. So I would come out something better than a three. Um, <laughs> well, as long as you kept paying, that's fine for me. <laughs> still came out a three. So I thought I'm not really a three. That test doesn't work. I think I'm a six. I think it was the enthusiast. I wanted to be that one. No, that's not a, a seven. So I started reading the book. I, I was using audible and listening to it on my way to work and stuff like that. And, I remember when I got to the to the three, um, got so uncomfortable and so upset. I didn't want to listen to it. I turned it off. I was like, mm. "I no, I'm not this perfect." And then there was a part in the book where you actually say, "If something is making you uncomfortable, like it's probably there's probably something there." Mm. And that was the only one of the the. Um, types that just was like a gut punch mm. and it bothered me really bad it was the shadow side that i was listening to that really interesting very okay uncomfortable. all right so you just got affected as you were telling that that story what was it about the three that you didn't want to be i think it was the you know the self-promotion hmm the um, winning at all cost. Um, I'm more comfortable at work than I was at home. Mm -hmm. um, my son was four weeks old when 
I remember justifying to myself that I needed to go back to work because they needed me. Like mm-hmm. I had to go back to work. When the truth is I felt more comfortable at work than I did at home being a mother. I didn't know how to be, a, I mean, I was struggling. And um, so I reading that just um, disturbed me because I, I heard and saw things in there that I, I guess I knew to be true mm-hmm. deep down. And it, it really shook me. Hmm. Now, what's interesting is, as I was having at this point, this book was making such an impact on me that I asked my entire executive team to take the test as well, because mm-hmm. I really wanted us to work together to understand each other better. So I knew that my um, CFO was an eight. When I got to the chapter on eight, and you talk about how oftentimes they have, um, you know, a childhood experience where we're it's very tough. You know, mm-hmm. they, they, they go through, they have like maybe a tough parent. I remembered because we'd worked together for 25 years. And I remembered in one of those, you know, team building exercises where we all share something from our past or whatever. She had shared about a father. It was very strict. And I remember mm-hmm. she was emotional when she talked about it. Well, then in my car, as I'm listening to you describe an eight as a child, or, you know, one scenario of an eight as a child, it hit me and I'm once again on my way to work crying. Hmm. So I learned not to read your book on my way to work. But <laughs> anyway, um, so I'm crying, but it's out of compassion. Hmm. And I just feel so touched because now I understand her so hmm. much more and I, I understand why she's the way she is. And then I thought to myself, why am I giving, why can I give her grace for why she's the way she is. And I can't give myself grace for how I am. Hmm. You know? And I, I remember really just getting to the parking lot at work and having to sit in my car and pray a little bit about that because it was, it really shook me up, hmm. but it has made a big impact on me personally and on our team and hmm. learning all of these things about each other. Wow, I'm so glad for that. And uh, I'm always thrilled when I hear about, you know, corporate or business settings when people are learning the Enneagram and it's transforming mm-hmm. the the whole culture in a way that's uh, not only beneficial relationally, you know, from day to day, but actually at the end of the day actually improves uh, the bottom line. There's just no question about it. Research is really, really clear about that. Let me ask you a question. Um, when you were... 20 years old, right? Uh, were you a kid that was really driven to succeed? I mean, just think about 18, 20, 21, 16. You know, it's like high achiever, type A personality, needed to win, had to come in first, had to cross the goal line first, had, uh, very concerned about your image. Uh, very concerned about others seeing you as a winner, had to avoid failure at all costs, didn't even know how to really handle failure. And you you had an ability to uh, shape shift or project a persona in any situation in order to win the crowd over. Or, let me just throw you a second one, or were you kind of a kid that was easy-go-lucky, don't rock the boat, happy to just be there, uh, didn't like to attract too much attention for all the support you gave to others to help them succeed and to get ahead. 
Um, maybe in your worst moments, you were kind of a wallflower that didn't really uh, stand up for yourself or assert your own voice, and uh, but just kind of was maybe lower energy than than other kids. Um, but which of those two sounds like you at eighteen or twenty? So this is weird because there are pieces of both of those. Mm -hmm. At school, I would be the wallflower, blend in, non-achiever, like barely graduated, just trying to blend in. At church, however, I was in charge of the drama team. I was the one that would write the skits. I was on stage. Our team ended up going and performing at other churches, and I loved being on the stage. When I mm -hmm. stepped on the stage, it was like something happened, and I loved making the crowd laugh. And then that bled over into me becoming a DJ. And I had a persona of mama for mama's family back in the day that I would imitate her. And I loved being on the stage. Mm. And I still, to this day, whenever I am asked to speak, I always dread it all the way up until the moment I step on the stage. And when I step on the stage, it's like an out-of-body experience. I mm -hmm. can't explain it. It's like something else happens. And I really enjoy connecting with the audience. Mm -hmm. Okay. So... When you're under stress and you're feeling, you know, kind of freaked out or whatever, do you um, become kind of paranoid, a worst case scenario thinker, more anxious than usual, uh, sort of a little paranoid, like everyone's out to get me, no one's, you know, that sort of a thing. Do you become more self-questioning and self-doubting? And when you're doing really well, are you, you know, acting like a really healthy three? Right. In other words, you know, um, more goal oriented, achievement oriented, driven, hardworking. OK. Or when you're de do, you, do you see where I'm going? Uh, does that sound like you? So the one thing that did sound like me is I will do worst case thinking, but not in an emotional way. And so I think that might be something I've learned as a leader is to always look at what is the best case scenario, what is the worst case scenario and try to you know, sort of hedge, try to plan either way. So I will often think, okay, what is the worst situation and start trying to mitigate whatever that worst situation is. Okay. So here's what I want you to do because it sounds like, and, and we don't have time necessarily to do a whole typing interview here. Um, in fact, Anthony, just put a little flag in here that we're going to jump in in a second. Could you hand me my uh, on the very bottom shelf, do you see that book, My Best Self? On the bottom shelf, purple, nope, nope, right there, all the way to your right. There's my, no, 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 the book next to it, to the left of it. Yeah, that's the one I want. Okay. We're going to edit, so don't don't panic. We we know what we're doing. Don't You just need to trust me. <laughs> um, <clears throat> okay, there it is. Uh, I mean, here's the thing, Amy, like, how image conscious are you? Very. You're very image conscious. Very. And I was even when I, I will say, even when I was 200 pounds, there wasn't much I could do, but I had the hair and makeup. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Lord. I had the hair and makeup going on. Right. And you're very concerned about how you come off to people, right? Very. When you're with people, can you look them in the eye and sort of intuitively know as you're looking at them, like, okay, who do I have to be in order? Yes. 
Yes, 100%. And I heard one of your guests speak to that. Uh-huh. And, and it hit me because I was like, I'm not the only person. Mm-hmm. Um, where And I used to say, I felt like there was some, I told my boss one time, I, I told her, I said, I feel like there's something in me and I just know, I know how I'm supposed to flex my personality to somebody. And I told her, I said, I feel really uncomfortable because I feel like I could manipulate somebody. And I felt, so I would always say to her, you know, I would tell her, be telling her story. And I would be like, I use my powers for good. Like I used to even joke about it, like call it my powers. I use my powers for good because I felt like I needed to be honest about the fact that I felt like there was something in me that I was able to connect with people in a way other people couldn't sometimes. Okay. So here's another possibility. And again, I, I'm just probing here. That's in a typing process. One of the things you don't want to do is, you know, in a, in a typing interview, you don't want to just, you know, kind of take your guess and project it onto the person. Uh, you know, you want them to kind of come up with themselves, right? Uh, I mean, another possibility is you're three, difficult home. Uh, you lived at the low side of nine a lot of the time, right? And we, you can see that in the description you have of that early adult life before the, the bombing. Uh, and, you know, after the bombing, you know, you by some, you know, mysterious uh, process, reclaimed your threeness. You know what I mean? Like it was like, wake up, mm-hmm. you know, and off you went back to your authentic, you know, type. Um, and, and and so let me, let me just ask you another, one more question. Do you tend to really over-identify who you are, your fundamental self with your job? I did until I went through some work to not do that. Okay, but you did I do absolutely it. did that. Okay. And did you did you have do you have some people in your life, admirable people, people that you kind of really look up to as the icons of success that you try to actually take some of their attributes on into your own person? And I, I did. Who was it by the way? What admirable person or my previous CEO. Okay. That is a very classic three move. It's called, it's, it's their defense mechanism. It's called over-identification. And so over-identification could be I over-identify who I am with the institution I work for. I over-identify who I am with my job title. I over-identify who I am with, an, with a, a person or group of people whose admirable traits I want to have in my own life. But you do it to the extent so far to the extent that you lose your authentic self. You lose mm. yourself. You lose yourself. Right. And that's over-identification, right? Yeah. That's the sort of the defense mechanism of, of the three. And, I did that. Well, I think we're starting to smell a three. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm not saying you're a three, but now, I, I, I don't know, it seems to me then that a three living at the low side of nine for a long time until they, you know, have this uh, incredible moment and they – uh, by some, by grace, maybe, you know, found themselves back at the high side of three. And of course, when you heard it, of course, you were looking at the, the painful side of the three. We all have that right. feeling with a type. And you were able, though, to see past it and realize that, uh, you know, that you can work on that stuff, right? Yeah. And, and be the yeah. highest expression of three. And here's the crazy thing, Amy. Do you know... We call it the holy law. Like, what is it that a three has lost? 
early on in childhood that they need to recover as adults? Do you know what it is? I know one of the things that's been difficult is to be loved for just being me mm-hmm. and not be loved for any success or any failure or, or not loved because of a failure. Right. And so I'm very thankful I'm married to a nine who is that person that doesn't yes. care at all about my accomplishments. <laughs> we just and did a three nine interview this morning too. That's so funny same with thing. another woman. Like uh, verbatim. Verbatim. Verbatim what this other three said about her uh, husband who's a nine. Yeah. I want to go back to the holy law here. It's hope. Oh, yes. It's hope. Mm. And some will say that's the virtue that the, I mean, authenticity is what the three has to move toward, but the, what they have to reclaim and remember mm. is hope. I want to go back to the holy law here. It's hope. Oh, yes. It's hope. Mm. And some will say that's the virtue that the, I mean, authenticity is what the three has to move toward, but the, what they have to reclaim and remember mm. is hope. And wow. uh, that, wow. yeah, it's hope that you can have, uh, it's like having faith that, you know, there's a natural rhythm to everything in life and that uh, it's going to happen without any effort on your part. And that like really through truthfulness, you're going to find self-acceptance and be valued for who you are. Wow. It's just the hope that every, I don't have to do everything. Mm-hmm. I don't have to kill everything. Yeah. Everything, yeah. everything in the natural rhythm of the universe, everything's going to get done. Hmm. And here you have a book called Hope is a Verb. Wow. Yes. And that's what the three is hope has to reclaim. Wow. That's beautiful. That's cool. I did not know that. Hey, that's let's close cool. on that then. <laughs> I love Because I, when I saw the title of your book and you're like, I'm not sure if I'm a three, I'm looking at hope is a verb. And I'm like, hmm. Wow. I wonder if she knows. Wow. I wonder well, if I'm, she knows. I'm really glad to hear you say that I'm a three. I didn't say that. So that, well, you kind of did. You alluded. I said, so, I said it sounds three. Well, okay. Three. You know. It sounds like a three. I'm glad it sounds like a three, so I don't have to spend more money to take the test again. <laughs> but so then again, I'm not sure. <laughs> I can give you a discount code. <laughs> because other than that, I think I need a punch card. Like, do I get my third one free or something? You know? um, so. <laughs> I'm not quite sure, Typology Institute forward slash. <laughs> Frequent flyer. All right. So tell us, tell us why a Typology listener needs to read Hope is a Verb, your new book. Hope is a verb is the idea that, you know, hope is you imagine having a better and brighter future than your past and that you play a role in that. Anybody who's been through um, anything they've been a victim of, whether it's a victim of, you know, a bad relationship or a medical situation or, you know, something you know, like a, like a bombing or a shooting or whatever the thing is. Right. So there's a point in which you are the victim, but in order to really move forward in your life and become that overcomer, I believe you have to take responsibility for the thing that happened to you. Even if it wasn't your fault, at some point you do have to take responsibility to move forward or you'll always stay stuck being that victim. And I remember after the bombing happened, I was in the hospital and I told somebody, I was like, I just wish somebody could walk in here and say, yeah, I was in a, I was in a bombing, you know, 10 years ago and I'm fine and you're going to be fine. And of course there was not that situation then. This was the 
the first act of terrorism and actually the largest still to the state in the United States. But when I read Purpose Driven Life, um, the book by Rick Warren and started thinking about what had happened to me and how can I use what happened to me to help other people. That's what I thought is maybe I can be that person who says, Hey, I'm over here. I'm on the other side of this thing and it's going to be okay. And you're going to be okay. And the way I'm trying to do that is by sharing how to, how I was able to take responsibility for a lot that happened in my life, not just the bombing, but, um, a lot of what had happened, take responsibility for then moving forward with my life. So I, I want this to be a book that encourages other people in their journeys and helps them be inspired in their own walk. And of course, that sounds like the high side of six, right? Mm-hmm, the three mm-hmm. goes to the high side of six. Right. And they start to be concerned with the very things that you're describing mm-hmm. right now. How do I help others succeed? How do I become uh, someone that is less interested in talking about my own success and helping others to uh, realize their own? Amy, what a incredible conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've given us a really good reason for our folks to go out and read. Hope is a verb. And uh, what's the subtitle on it? My Journey of Impossible Transformation. I love it. Hope mm. is a verb. My journey of impossible transformation. Yes. Wonderful. Amy, uh, tell folks uh, about your website and about where they can discover you on social channels. All right. My website is amydowns.org, and I have all my social links out there on my website. Fantastic. Wow, everybody. So I want you to go out and get Amy Downs' new book, Hope is a Verb. Listen to her, uh, read about her amazing story of impossible transformation. And uh, what a joy to have you on today to sort of poke around between three and nine. And mm-hmm. again, you know, it's interesting. We had another conversation today about trauma. Mm-hmm. And this has been a theme, right? Yeah. We're doing it in our monthly subscription That's thing right, right now yeah. about the Enneagram and trauma. We've had two people on today talking about trauma and mm-hmm. the effect it had on the development of their personality. I think, you know, whenever I hear this, I'm always like, okay, higher power, what are you up to right, right. now? That's you know, right. it's yeah. like, uh, you know, it's a little, cons- little divine conspiracy <laughs> going on here. Apparently, this is a topic we need to address. So, Amy, hey. would you come back on sometime in the near future? Oh, you know, I would love it. Man, what a hoot. Fantastic. Well, Enneagram tribe, remember these words. May you have love. May you have joy, may you have peace, may you have healing, and may you have rest. Until next time. If you're in business, you probably have a website, but can your site handle your growth? How many visitors before your site slows down or crashes? What about storage and data security? From web hosting to virtual servers, Pair Networks provides the online infrastructure you need to start, grow, and flourish. When it comes to security and updates, don't worry, we've got you covered. Our 24-7 U.S.-based customer support is the best in the industry. No frustrating chatbots or sitting on hold for hours. Check out Pair.com today to learn more. That's P-A-I-R.com.